Hello and welcome to episode Vakla Verata of the Cost for Pointcast. I am your host, Trevor Shackles. This is another emergency episode for the podcast as some big trade news came out our way last night. To discuss the Nate Thompson trade, as it will now be known, is the creator of HockeyViz.com, Micah Blake McCurdy. Micah, how's it going? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I, I mainly want to talk about the trade between the Senators and the Kings uh, last night, obviously. But there's a lot to talk about regarding the move, so let's just get into it right now. Obviously, most people know the official move is Funuf and Thompson for Marion Gabrick and Nick Shore. But Ottawa retains 25% of Funuf's salary moving forward. How does this look financially for the Senators, considering that was clearly their biggest motive here? Uh, I think the it depends on exactly who you talk to. Um, the cap details are one of these things that only come out in, in fits and bursts, and so everybody thinks they know the exact number, uh, but everybody has a different idea. And depending on who you talk to, it's somewhere in the vicinity of, of $5 million in actual cash that they will save right. over the length of the, the contract. And I think it's pretty clear that, that you got to get that out in front, that that's the main motivation in, in Ottawa is to save actual dollars, and that the the hockey considerations are secondary after that. Right, and that's why I kind of wanted to cover the financial aspect of that first because the actual on-ice product is definitely secondary in this. And you mentioned it in the beginning. I, it's definitely a very confusing move. Um, Colin Cudmore at Silver 7 Cents had an article up just a couple hours ago trying to go through the financial aspects of it. And man, I had to read it a few times. It is pretty damn confusing, to be honest, because there's different numbers for... Um, the actual salaries, but then there's also the cap it numbers, and then there's bonuses involved, and obviously Dion and uh, and Marion Gabrick just have different structured contracts, so it's pretty confusing. But I guess you'd probably agree, though, that they got the better, well, I don't know if they got the better deal, but they at least improved their money situation moving forward, wouldn't you say? I agree with that. I think... Uh, I mean, both. I think Gabrick Steel is is clearly bad. Funos is also obviously bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I, I think it's just as simple as as the money that they that they don't have to spend, even with the salary retention and the the way that you know normally for most teams there'd be some special considerations about cap, which you know since Ottawa's working entirely on its own internal cap is is not going to come up the same way. And so for for the Kings, there might have been some some thinking along those lines, but I don't think that's going to be relevant in Ottawa's case. For sure. Um, what do you think about Nate Thompson and his contract and being able to move that one? I think it's excellent that they moved yeah. it out. Um, I, uh, I mean, there are lots of, like the whole problem is the team doesn't have quite enough talent this year. I mean, there, that's, there are many other problems, but that's a central problem. And, and one of them is there's a huge slew this year of depth players who sh- just shouldn't have been getting minutes at all. And Nate Thompson is is probably the most obvious on that list. I mean, he's in my mind, he's not an NHL player at all, and there's no reason to employ him. And so I'm I'm delighted from a fan point of view. I'm delighted to see him move along. Right. I was looking at your thread last night, um, talking about the trade, and you had those those graphs on Thompson, and they just abysmal. Especially the uh, the shot rates with like with the heat maps. Those are just those have to be one of the worst in the league. Yeah, and, and one of the things that annoys me, this is going to link into some stuff we might talk about later about trade targets, is that you know, there's lots of guys who have the same kind of description and, and, and play the same kinds of minutes and get the same sort of talk and, and I don't know, hubbub around them. And you know, 
there are lots of guys who turn into sort of fan favorite types. And Pajot is one, and um, and Thompson is another. And yet, the, and stylistically, you see why that happens. But the gulf in terms of results that they get between the two of them is just enormous. And and so as a quantitative thinker, you know, I, I really want to to focus just on results as much as I possibly can. And and Thompson is one of these players who, when on the ice, just never got any kind of results that would be worth paying any money for. Definitely agreed. Even even before this season when he was in Anaheim and Tampa Bay, it's just the results didn't show up. And it was just, I find it absolutely hilarious that they gave him a two-year deal with, you know, a partial no-trade clause, $1.65 million cap hit. Um, you know, after after he had, I don't even know how many points he had gotten in the previous season, but it was something between 10 and 15 or something around there. And, you know, eight months later, or however many months it is, He's involved in a salary dump. So, I mean. Yeah, so in, in 2017, this year so far, he has 11 points. Last year, he had, in Anaheim, uh, he had two points. The year before that, in Anaheim, six points. The year before that, he's 18. Okay, like, so. It's really. <laughs> so I was yeah, actually overestimating points is not, though. Well, I, and in fact, the thing is, like, I don't, I'm sympathetic to arguments that say, oh, you know, we didn't employ him for points. We employed him for something else. I think that's fine. Right. The. And, you know, the, I don't Eric mind Condra. the fact that he doesn't score. I find the fact that he's that yeah, sure. In fact, I adored Condra, and he wasn't ever going to put up points. The, I mean, the reason why his deal was bad is because he was defensively weak, and that was part of what was frustrating to have him constantly described as being defensively strong, when that was precisely what he was not. For sure. So that that sort of thing, you know, really, really grinds on you. You know, when people are telling you the precise opposite of the truth all the time, it gets very very <laughs> tiresome. But the you know, the thing about is not the money. People complained about the money in the term and those things are bad. But the real injury in my mind is just the minute. The, you know, if if you were getting something, you know, and, and Gabrick, for instance, who, who's going to play now for a little while, you know, he's clearly extremely overpaid, but you're going to get an NHL player. However, you know, colored by how you, good he used to be, which he is not anymore. Whereas Thompson hasn't been an NHL player for quite some time. And, you know, there's no slight against his hockey abilities. I mean, I can't even skate, right? But, but if you want to, to have people who can fill minutes, you know, at an NHL replacement level, even weak farm systems like Ottawa can pull them up at the drop of a hat. And Thompson is worse than that, and he was playing constantly. So that's very frustrating. Right, and I think that's why people are clamoring for a bigger front office in Ottawa. You know, Eugene Melnick bragging pretty much about having the smallest front office in the league. And... You know, if you have if you have a uh, you know a better assistant GM, better better people surrounding Pierre Dorian, you know, perhaps he doesn't make that mistake of signing Nate Thompson. But I want to get into Marion Gabrick, and because he's he's more of an interesting case moving forward because people even brought up the possibility that he might retire. Do you see that as even remotely possible, or because he'd be walking away from money at that point? No. I, I, yes, a lot of money. I yeah. don't, I don't particularly see any, I don't see why he's going to retire. Um, I, I don't quite understand why those rumors have surfaced, but rumors normally come with something around them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's very unusual, Gabrick, you know, Nate Thompson, you just see the same thing all the time. If you look at his statistics, you can pick any particular chunk of time. You can pick whatever, especially because he was used in a very consistent way. You know, whatever it is you look at, you sort of see the same thing again. Gabrick, on the other hand, I mean, each season is its own beast. This season has sort of like fugue movements almost within it that are all totally 
you know, totally different from one another. The first section of the year, he's playing with, with Kempe and Lewis. The second section of the year, he's playing with Toffoli and Lewis. He has great production with both of those and, and passable shot rates to boot. Then all of a sudden, they decide, for whatever reason, that they're not going to play him with those guys anymore. He goes out with a grab bag of line mates for his last bunch of games. He's completely atrocious. Um, he, he no longer scores. He goes from being a positive shot differential player to being a hideously negative shot differential player. Almost, almost at the like a, you know, you just look on a graph and you can see this is the moment. You feel like if you had tape, you could, you know, record the precise moment that whatever it was went wrong for him this year went wrong. And so, you know, is that's a it's hard to understand to square that kind of catastrophic change in on ice results with with something that's not you know if if it was a nasty injury then the trade would be blocked right so so it can't be it can't be something like that is it is it just that he decided that he no longer wanted to play for the kings did he ask for a trade we didn't hear any of that like that kind of extremely stark discrepancy in a player's statistics is is very very unusual you know, so for the first two thirds of the year, he was riding this incredible bender of percentages, where where his team and him personally had glorious uh, shooting percentages, and all of his opponents had terrible shooting percentages. Until he hits this wall, where all of a sudden his shot results are terrible, and his and his percentages result don't change at all. I mean, they don't. Sorry, they don't invert. They don't get worse. They just drop off completely to nothing. Nobody scores for either team when Gabriel's on the ice in the last ten games. Literally, no, literally, I don't, like, not hyperbole. Exactly zero, zero five wow. on five goals in his <laughs> last 11 or 12 games. None at all. <laughs> so, you know, and that's that's the thing that no one expects from Gabrick is no goals whatsoever, right? That's, you know, the book, if you like, on Gabrick is that he's extremely skilled, likely to put the puck in the net, possibly a defensive weakness. You know, you, you think maybe lots of goals for everybody is what you'd expect. So something... Something is like me not understanding what's going on with a player in a particular season, especially one that I haven't watched a lot, is extremely common. And this is this is that times ten. This is perhaps the weirdest single season statistical profile on a single player I have ever seen. So I think you're describing a player that seems to be at least a bit reliant on other players. Um, so yeah, in, that, in that sense, would you would you kind of compare him to Bobby Ryan? Yeah, I, I, you know, what little I have seen of him recently, the I, I feel is sort of fits the that kind of description. Um, I don't, you know, in particular, his power play numbers are this year are continue to be very strong. Um, but the, I mean, he's only played fifty five minutes on the power play this year. That's not, you know, the, the Kings on the whole have played like two hundred and sixty minutes on the power play, so he's clearly not a, you know, key important part of the power play this year. So that's, it's hard to sort of gauge exactly what that impact is. But, you know, Ryan, on the other hand, has, had, has been dreadful in the power play this year. In fact, he's been dreadful in the power play for a number of years now, which is bizarre considering his skill set. So, you know, the power play differences might, might make them not quite so comparable. But I do think there's, there should be a fair bit of similarity there. Now, of course, the trade is, isn't just money in, money out. There are actual players involved, like we've just been talking about with Gabrick. And so in, in terms of on-ice performance, do you think the centers got any worse or better uh, with this trade, or do you think they kind of just stay right where they were beforehand? Uh, I think the centers actually got quite a bit better. Um, that's uh, it's quite surprising to me. I don't, um, I feel like a lot of their moves recently have been, have been weak. And, 
Um, but on the whole, I think I think they're considerably improved. Um, it's slightly tricky to say because it's not it's not balanced in terms of um, defenders and forwards on either side. You know, one defender and forward for for two forwards. But but I still think that that Fenuf in particular um, was blocking prospect not prospects exactly. It depends on what you consider Clayson, who he was definitely blocking. The if you I mean, who should have been a regular in the lineup for the entire year and who wasn't. And, and you know, I think Fanuf would not have been my first choice for somebody to move out there. You know, but at any time you consider these you know, movements like this and on-ice impact, you have to say, well, who's going to get the minutes of the person who's leaving? And of course, it's not going to be any of the people who appeared in the trade from Los Angeles in the case of Fanuf. So, so you have to look at the depth chart for Ottawa to gauge that. I think uh, Clayson is a much better defender, than, especially defensively, than Fanuf. And so if he plays a great deal more, um, with Finuf out, then that's a win in itself. Um, especially because Finuf showed unusually bad chemistry with CC, with whom, of course, he now won't play. Um, you know, I, I think will, Gabbard, I will sorry, say this trade is 100% worth it just because we never have to see the pairing of Dion Finuf and Cody CC again. I agree. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like that. There are lots of holes, lots of things that went wrong this year. Um, but but one of the hugest mistakes I think that the front office made in this offseason is that they decided that the success of last year was because of Fanuf and CC as a pairing together and not despite it. Right. And uh, so that's, you know, there's an internal structure win there. Um, I also think that that Gabrick has, uh, unless there's something extremely strange going on, um, I think he has a lot more left in him than, than people seem to think. Um, is I mentioned before how confused I was about his stats generally, so it's hard for me to be extremely definitive about that. But I still see a lot of positives. You know, the the taking as a whole season, his scoring rates are top line. Even over several seasons, they're top line. You know, his shot impacts are not great, uh, but not bad, which in Ottawa is amazing. Um, and then also you have to look at the fact that that Nick Shore is a very very plain improvement over. Um, Nate Thompson. In fact, he's a substantial improvement over a lot of the depth forwards that Ottawa has. So, you know, if if something screwy happens with Gabrick, if they decide to buy him out, if he retires under mysterious circumstances, if he's allergic to his equipment, if I don't know what, you know, if there's like statistically, and is Gabrick is one of those players where you look at and you think, okay, there's something here I'm definitely not catching. You know, like who knows what off ice, who knows? But Nick Shore, on the other hand, is is a clear improvement with no particular unusualnesses, you know, the kind of guy you would love to have on your third line. Um, and, and I hope he becomes a regular there because that all of a sudden takes what has been at times a weakness this year. And there's been so much juggling. It's hard to sort of pin down exactly where the weaknesses are. I think that he has a chance to, to really slot in nicely. there. Right. I think, I think the picking up shore is kind of underrated here. I, I think ideally He'd be more of a 4C, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I believe he was like the King's fourth-line center, no? Yes, I think yeah. so. Yeah, so, I mean, replacing Thompson with Shore is just massive, and I think Shore is kind of that defensive center that people thought Thompson was or, or still think he is, um, but he actually has those good results, and you were showing yesterday as well with your graphs, how well he had done on the penalty kill. And that's that's huge because their penalty kill has been dreadful. And if you can actually have a guy who isn't a total drag five on five and can put up decent penalty kill results, then that's an actual good bottom six addition, which is rare for the Senators. I agree. And it's, it's, 
in fact, I, I should clarify that I, I said he was at their number four C. It depends on how you on how you count. If you go strictly by ice time, he was he was often higher up the depth chart than that. Um, very often he was their their number three C this year. Um, it's it's also a little bit tricky. I mean, I agree with that stuff about the penalty kill and as far as it goes, um, but it's hard to be sure about it because you know penalty kills are so strongly influenced by by coaching and by systems and and single players don't normally revamp a a penalty kill sort of just like that. But I think I think that's one of the troubles too is that the, a lot of the players who who we've put out on the penalty kill have been have been weak. This is one of the problems with Funuf this year in particular. I'm actually not not nearly as down on Funuf as a number of players, a number of sorry, not players, a number of of analysts around the league are. Um, but I think most of his abilities are offensive, not defensive as he's been as he's been touted. In particular, playing him heavily on the penalty kill, I think plays to his weaknesses and and I think he was doing it very very badly. So, uh, you know, sure obviously isn't going to replace him on the penalty kill just positional difference alone. But um, but I, I I fail to see how the penalty kill can't be improved by the trade, the auto penalty kill. For sure. I mean, even just addition by subtraction, even if you'd just gotten rid of Thompson, I'm sure it would have improved a bit. Um, and I to do. go back to your earlier point about Gabrick, you know, I was looking at his, his points per 60 rates the last few years, and he was, you know, fifth, seventh, sixth, um, or fifth, sixth, seventh on the on the Kings in the last few years. So it, it looked like he had you know, a, a bit left in the tank. But then again, I believe Bobby Ryan's uh, point totals, or sorry, points per 60 this year aren't that bad either. But then you look at Ryan and it's like, well, I don't know if, you know, he might he might have point totals or point rates, sorry, like a first-line player, but I'm not really going to call him that. So I don't know. Like you said as well, it's there, there's something that we can't really catch just by looking at the numbers. So... I mean, ideally, so, he's more like a third-line player, but you're right. It, it does seem like there's at least something left in his game. So when you look at... You, you speak to an interesting point about rates and, and totals. The, the traditional hockey types tend to prefer to look at totals, and, and nerdier types tend to prefer to look at rates. And, and on the one hand, I think rates are definitely superior. I think, I think they're the only way you can compare players fairly. But on the other hand, the, the, way, the way you should think about you know, if you have two players and one of them is getting way more minutes and has a low rate and one guy is getting way less minutes and has a way higher rate, I don't think the correct conclusion is, oh, well, the guy with the higher rate has to be better. I think the correct conclusion is the guy with the higher rates should get some more minutes. You know, that's, you don't have to, like, if you extend his minutes, extending any player's minutes always moves them up the depth chart in terms of the, the quality that the of players that they're playing with and against. You know, you just can't be helped because the good players play so much more than the weak players. So you can't, you can't, you know, bump up a guy by 20% from anywhere without making his teammates and his opponents harder. And if you can keep on putting up those rates in some, in better minutes, you know, now you can start to compare him with that other notional person fairly. So if I see somebody like Ryan, I don't want to immediately say, oh, well, you know, he ought to be your number one or he ought to be whatever winger. But I do think, you know, you should be finding the people who are putting up good rates and push their minutes until they're not putting up good rates anymore. And so that's, that. I mean, if you're on a playoff team, you don't have to think like that. If you're on a playoff team, you can just say, well, you know, we're just going to enjoy having, having a guy who could be a second-line guy on our third line, and that's just how you build a playoff team. Um, but Ottawa, so maybe there's some sort of thinking that way with, with the Kings from their point of view. But from Ottawa's point of view, I think you should be 
hopeful that, you know, even flash in the pan rates, you can find them and put them in a spot and then push them from there and see if you can extend them into, into larger distances. With Ryan, for instance, you know, that, that hasn't been possible in particular because of injury. For sure. Um, I, I'm, I'm at least interested to see what Gabbert can bring. He turned, I believe it was today, he turned 36. So he's definitely up there in age. But, you know, he has 14 points in 30 games this year. That's definitely not terrible. And, and his rate numbers are better than that. So I, I, I don't think that, like, yes, it is a salary dump. But at the same time, you know, maybe he, he could actually make their, their forwards better. Um, and I wanted to go back to, just quickly, back to uh, the financial aspect of this. If you could go back two years... Do you wish they'd never acquired Phaneuf in the first place and simply found other ways to get rid of uh, Jared, Cowan, Jared Cowan, Colin Greening, and Milan Mahalik? Um, yeah, I guess. But if but if we're going to play a game like that, then I then I prefer to go back further still. Yeah, that's um, I think, you know, like, if we're going to correct past mistakes, I think it's just simple enough to, um, to just not... Um, to cut bait with Cowan much, much earlier, um, to not sign Greening to the contract that you signed, um, which is not completely wishful thinking. Both of those mistakes were extremely easy to, to see coming. Um, the Mahalik, on the other hand, is not quite so, you know, his most recent Ottawa deal wasn't so obviously wrong at the time, um, especially because, you know, it's easy afterwards when somebody gets hurt and has, and has to have his knee stitched up again. It's easy to say, well, you know, he had an injury history. We can always see that coming. But every player in the league has an injury history of one kind or another, and they don't all re-injure themselves. You know, it's sort of post hoc thinking. And so I might have just eaten the McCulloch deal and then just not made the two other deals. But given that they were made the way that they were, I didn't mind the Finuf deal itself. And I thought Finuf, especially early on, I thought he did reasonably well, especially offensively for Ottawa. And, and they needed some extra offense, especially trading away as much as they did. Right, so if you if you are of the mind that Dion Phaneuf was a decent defender in Ottawa, do you think that Cody Cece kind of dragged him down a bit, or so? I mean, when it comes to Phaneuf, looking at Phaneuf and Cece together, um, I don't think it's quite so simple as just saying that they one of them dragged the other one down. Uh, I think they were both defensively both quite weak. The whatever Cece's talents still remain, I think they're entirely offensive, just like. Um, just like Phaneuf's, and I think they were put in a role that was very inappropriate to them, being used in a high quality of competition, you know, purely defensive, lots of defensive zone starts when they're very, very bad at getting out of their own zone. But, but even still, I think you can tease apart um, a little bit who is dragging down whom, and I think CC is definitely harming Phaneuf more than the other way around. So yeah, I, I don't feel like there's a great deal of of generosity um, to go around. I think they're both reasonably weak, and I think they're both very to blame for the, the woes of the current season. But even considering that, I think that, that Phaneuf is definitely the stronger side of the pair. Agreed. I, right now, obviously, the Ottawa, Ottawa's depth on defense is pretty putrid, but I'm at least interested to see if they can maybe make an addition on that second pairing. You know, if they get, can get rid of CeCe as well, maybe can get uh, an entirely different second pairing. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but it'll at least be different than, than Phaneuf and CeCe. So um, at least next year we'll have something different. Do you know, I don't, I'm not sure that it, I mean, you can go on if you like, but I'm not sure that it's so weak as all that. 
the I think you take Shabbat, Clayson, um, Carlson, Borowiecki, and Weidman. I think you take that as a as a, a starting six. I think you know organized variously. It's not exactly an excellent defense crew. I'm not sure I'd call it a cup contending crew, but I think it's definitely middle of the league or maybe even slightly better. You know what? I will say. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a fan of Shabbat, and I I really like Kleisen and Weidman as well. Um, I will say, just analyzing hockey the past few years, it is amazing how many teams have so many bad defensemen. So I guess you're right. Maybe it it does have some potential. It especially if they move CC out and he's he's not getting those minutes anymore. So you know, because there's a lot of teams, even like really good teams, they'll have two, maybe even three defensemen that really shouldn't be in the spot where they're playing. It, it just doesn't seem like there's actually that many good defensemen out there. I think, I mean, on the one hand, I agree with you. I have that same sensation when I'm, when I'm doing work all the time, when I'm doing analysis, when I'm doing statistical work. But, but every time I sort of stop to think about that, I realize that if, that if this feeling continues to happen to me and to other people, it really means that we should change our mind about what we consider to be a capable defender. You know, the, the talent level of the league is what it is, and the forwards are as good as they are, and all defenders have to play against all the forwards. The, and so every team is going to have defenders with obvious weaknesses. Every team. Even the team that wins the cup, no matter what, they will have. They will do it in the teeth of some defenders who are, some forwards too, who are not especially good. I mean, that's just the reality of, of living in a, a big league with a lot of competition. And I think once you realize that, then... Uh, you know, this is easier said than done. But if you can do it, I think you can make yourself a better analyst of realizing that, you know, that ironclad sets of six guys, you know, just don't happen. Oh, totally. And like, obviously, you, it's literally impossible for every player in the league to be good, right? Like, or right. even... It, it, it doesn't even just, make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you look at a team like Nashville, even they have... I mean, I think their bottom pairing has Matt Irwin and Alexei Emlin, who, you know, I guess I guess they are, you know, okay third-pairing defensemen, but we don't really think of them as capable defenders. No, and part of why you can get away with that if you're in Nashville is that they, um, they play their top four very, very heavily and play their bottom pair very, very little. Yeah. And that's something you can do if you know that your top four is above average, which they are. So you, you know, but there's no... You know, you don't eliminate weaknesses. All you do is you, you try to make sure that your strengths are more than your weaknesses. So that you can, you can kind of go nuts chasing your own tail, thinking to myself, oh, you know, we've got we've to do something about all these weaknesses. But really, you have to take the opposite approach. You say, we need to win, which means we need strengths, and the strengths come first. And then after that, we'll make sure that the weaknesses aren't too bad. Right. I, I will say, I think it would be a massive boost, though, if... Ottawa was able to get either a left-handed or right-handed shot defenseman that can go in that second pairing just to just to really fill it out. I agree it would it would would help. And I think one of the ways that I mean one of the only practical ways that you can do that from the the negotiating position in terms of what kind of talent they can they can offer in trades. The the only way that they can do that at this point is if they take somebody who's going to be paid more actual somebody who's actually reasonably capable but who's being paid you know, a million or $2 million more than they deserve. Uh, and I think the current financial climate in Ottawa just makes that impossible. So I don't, I don't see a move of like that happening in the, in the next little while. I think we're going to have to subsist on 
you know, the guys we already have in the system and possibly some kids on ELCs. Do you think uh, Dion Phaneuf's available? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think I think the other thing, too, is that um, there's a, a coaching issue, too, where I think that there are a lot of teams, and Ottawa may well be one of them, where there are players, young players on ALCs or on very early in RFA contracts who are making the you know the kind of money that Ottawa can afford, who ought to play not just on the third pairing occasional minutes, but serious minutes at a very young age. The I, I very generally think that players can capably break into the league earlier than they are breaking into the league. And I think that that's because people are making risk averse choices with players that they don't know well. And and Boucher is sad to say uh, especially bad for this. So there's a, a coaching peculiarity there that uh uh, I mean, maybe peculiarity is a little bit generous. You know, there's a logjam there that has to be broken. I think, if if the financial and the the on ice roster issues and the coaching issues, you know, when they conspire to to yell at each other like that, you know, the, something's got to give at some point. Yeah, I agree. I I don't think Boucher is the right guy moving forward. If they are going to get a lot younger, I just he doesn't seem like a guy that young players are going to particularly like. Um, and he's, you know, he's grown more fond of Thomas Shabbat and Colin White recently. But, man, just earlier in the year, he wasn't giving him anything. And that's, I don't know, that's, that's not exactly a good sign moving forward. I think as a GM, you just, have to, you just have to take those decisions out of your coach's hands. Just make sure that the roster that they have is yes. the roster that you want to see on the ice. I think if you're a, you know, uh, that creates a kind of adversarial note between the, the GM and the coach. But I think if everybody's a professional, you can handle that. And I and you know of all the various flaws with with anybody around, I don't think there's any knock on anybody's professionalism. I think every single person has you know has a uh, blameless record for for acting professionally, at least you know until you get to the very top. Yep. So um, moving back to Funuf quickly, he was obviously only here for for two years. How do you think he'll be remembered as a senator on and off the ice? So on the ice, I think we've covered a lot of that ground already. I think there, he had, you know, he, he was a little bit better than people realized when he first arrived, and so I think people realized that fairly fast. Still, some obvious flaws that that were never, you know, he was never played with somebody who would cover over those flaws. In fact, made them worse. So I think the on ice legacy is is kind of doomed to be bad, and the off ice legacy is almost certain to be excellent. The as far as anybody can tell, he's universally beloved by his teammates. You know, he was in Calgary. He was in Toronto. He was in Ottawa. The, I mean, already you see, you know, it's only been 24 hours, and already the litany of of broadcasters telling stories about how they loved him and how what a sweetheart he was, and and so on and so forth are are already filling up my Twitter feed. And I don't think there's any reason to doubt the veracity of any of that. So, which is a little bit unusual, um, you know, to have that kind of that kind of strong difference between between those two legacies, but. But in some sense, not too surprising. I think we realize that that players, you know, can be great off the ice and good on the ice, and vice versa, or both, or neither. And you just get, you know, humans are like they are. So I think on the whole, people will will just because people are like that, they'll latch on to the good that they can remember and try and and let go of the bad. At least that's what I try to do. Right. I think most people, myself included, are kind of kind of glad that the player slash mainly his contracts are gone. But, you know, we, we do sometimes forget that there's actually a human aspect. And I'm sure he was very well liked in the room. And I'm sure the players are sad that he's gone. 
And, you know, when he, when he was on the Leafs, I think most Senators fans probably hated Phaneuf, but he genuinely seems like a, a nice man. And he, uh, he's, he seems like everybody really liked him. So in that sense, you know, it is kind of sad to go. And once we realized that these players aren't robots, they actually have emotions and, and feelings. And I think that if his contract was, you know, if his cap hit was like two, $3 million or something, and he was playing on that second pairing, putting up those results, he probably would have been universally loved, honestly. I agree. And you know, sort of from an analytics point of view, I, I think I'd like to think that we would take the same bead on him that we do. We being sort of, you know, me and all other analysts collectively, some sort of cabal of nerds. But, but you do, you know, the, it's, it's easy to let money seep into colors all of the discussions you have because you know, you know this, is, this is sort of t- letting you in on the sausage a little bit, but it's, it's very difficult to be completely unbiased about, about how you talk about a player when you know that if you, you know, if I were to, to loudly praise Phaneuf in a particular night, you know, I am completely sure that people would yell at me because however good he may have been in a particular night, it can't possibly be good enough in their own minds to justify the money that he makes. And just because people are petty. And, and so there's, you know, even if it's not strictly relevant to how well he outshot or was outshot or scored or didn't score or any number of things on the ice, it's, it's always in the back of people's mind and sometimes in the front of people's mind when you have the kind of contract, which is not just a, well, I'm paid a little bit more than I deserve, but uh, I'm paid several million dollars more than I deserve for years. And I've already been, you know, the subject of national scrutiny when he was in Toronto and part of a blockbuster deal coming out of Calgary, you know, so that there's a, a, a salary, not just a salary hit, not just a cap hit and not just a term, but also a, a shared social history, which changes the way that you talk about people. And it makes you, you know, tone down the things that you say about somebody and, and can become self-fulfilling, which is unfortunate, but, I think an unavoidable part of the fact that that everything we do is, you know, people forget that nerds are humans too, and everything, everything that analysts, that journalists, that players, that broadcasters, managers, the whole infrastructure ecosystem of the sport, all of those people are are doing human things and responding to human pressures while they try to do their jobs. Right. Well, it sucks that when people are upset at Fanuf, you know, they they're getting upset at the fact that he signed this contract rather than getting upset at the fact that um, the Toronto Maple Leafs ownership and general manager, the fact that they actually offered him that contract instead. Oh, sure. And, and people can get, I mean, like introducing a little bit of bias in your analytical results because of somebody's contract is, is I don't know, more of a vice of some particular rating. But then people can be extremely nasty, you know, when, when the Leafs lost that game famously, that game seven to the Bruins where they were up 4-1. The, you know, there was a FNF featured largely in that game and, and the media made basically something out of nothing over a look exchanged by, um, by James Reimer, by April Reimer and Alicia Cuthbert. Right. You know, and that was, and many extremely unsavory things were said, you know, <laughs> the, I mean, and that was obviously extremely sexist and people sort of showed their butts a lot, but, but FNF of course was, was right in the center of that trying to step up for a big hit and let a, a goal go back the other way. And, and so, you know, you want to talk about legacies. He's already, he's already gone through, you know, he, like he's not just some defender with a big contract. He's a veteran of the league who's gone through any number of, of 
uh, furors, I guess, for lack of a better word. For sure. He, he's gone through a lot. And I, I definitely wish him well in, in Los Angeles. And if he went anywhere, I'm, I'm glad he went there, honestly, because, you know, with his is his wife still acting? I would assume she is. I mean, I should assume so, too. I, I yeah, don't so I'm, I'm assuming that L.A. Is, is a pretty good spot for them if they're going to go anywhere. And, you know, L.A. is still a decent team. So he, he's got a chance to win, at least moving forward. Well, and they're reasonably they're quite likely to make the playoffs this year. 60, yeah. 65 percent. Yeah, looking pretty good. So uh, move, moving away from Phaneuf, though, there's obviously been lots of chatter around the Sens for the past few months in terms of trade rumors. So if you had to rank the most likely players to be moved before the deadline, maybe just the first few, how would you do that? So the most likely is, so it's very tricky how you ask these, the, the ones I most want to go, the ones that I most <laughs> expect will go, or the ones that, that are, most... are the best choices. I would um, not who, three different things. Yeah, not who you would pick, because I think those would be the list would probably be similar to mine, but probably much different than Pierre Dorian. So I'll say the most likely, just in terms of what you expect to. Well, to that be moved. De- that depends a lot on on who comes up with offers. So uh, I'm trying to think of what kinds of players are are likely to be um, are likely to be desirable. Uh, I think definitely. Um, Smith is reasonably likely to move. Um, I think he's the kind of player that a lot of teams will look at and say, gee, our fourth line sucks. Wouldn't it be nice if we had Zach Smith on our fourth line instead? You know, even really good teams who are clear entries to the playoffs will, will have that kind of calculus and say, you know, we'll, and he's not exactly a rental, but we'll say things like, you know, he doesn't have a great deal of term left on his deal. The is reasonably cheap. The that's the kind of, you know, and and that's and that's the kind of thing that those are the sorts of playoff teams who win a lot is ones who have guys who are playing a line below their ability, and and so that's sort of what you that makes Smith a really good fit. I think a similar logic would would apply to somebody like Pajot, although I don't think uh, um, I don't think he's going to command quite as much interest. Um, it depends on if you think your your weaknesses are offensive or if you think they're defensive. If you think they're defensive, then Pajot is is a better fit. If you think they're offensive, then you probably turn your mind to somebody like Mike Hoffman. Um, and, and if you're sort of in between, then I think somebody like Smith. And so Smith is a little bit more all-rounder than the other two. And so I think he's probably top of my list for, for most likely to find a fit. I think if you were a GM in another team, you could talk yourself into Zach Smith as either the depth scoring or the shore up your third, fourth line defensively that you needed. I think pretty much every team going into the playoffs is looking to add a top nine forward. And Zach Smith can probably fit in perfectly on anybody's third line left wing, maybe even fourth line left wing if they're that deep. So you're right. I, I definitely think teams are are going to be pretty interested in him. You can play him is at it, center is too. It, sorry? You can play him at center too. Yeah, you could. And But so, I mean, I guess you could. the Senators could sell that, um, the fact that he could play center as well. Do you think they could get something as high as a first for him? Because I could see that as happening, to be honest. From a great, from a, a playoff team that thinks they're going to have a, a deep run, then yes, I think there's a chance of getting a first. Um, I wouldn't say it's a great chance at a guess, but then the, the it's sort of, it's never easy to tell who is going to, I, I think that would be a slight overpayment for Smith myself, but that doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, and that's, that's the trick. 
and and so much of what passes, what changes the deal from being a a, a win in one team's favor to being a win in another team's favor, you know, and in, and even in between, is the specific circumstances of of exactly who made a particular deal and why, and so it can be very very tricky to to tease those things apart. So I think, you know, can you get a, a low first form? Probably you can, especially if you're patient and careful. Right. I think just looking uh, back last year at the Martin Hansel trade, the fact that he got, or the, the fact that Arizona got a first and a second for him, I think that's a decent precedent. And I guess you can kind of frame Smith as a guy who's, you know, built for the playoffs. He's this tough, gritty player that, that, uh, teams are going to need in the playoffs so i'm hopeful that they can get a first honestly i'd settle for a second just like curtis lazar last year what about a guy like johnny oduya because same thing with depth forwards people uh teams are always looking for depth defensemen you know he could maybe be that sixth seventh defenseman for for a team that's that's looking for one i so i mean oduya it's weird oduya has on the one hand he has he has pedigree in the sense that he's been on a lot of teams a lot of good teams um on the other hand, he's been on so many teams that that pedigree is starting to turn into journeyman, you know, maybe shouldn't be given any more extra chances kind of territory. Uh, so it's it's kind of hard to get a, a bead on what other people uh, think of him that way. It's especially weird, you know, like stories came out about how, um, you know, for instance, Carlson apparently wanted Oduya to come to the team that he that he encouraged Oduya and and suggested his name to Dorian. And the, I mean, I have no doubt that, I mean, I'm sure Oduya is an extremely nice man. I'm sure that they're friends and I'm sure Carlson feels good about that, but I, I don't think that was wise. And one great reason why I don't trust players for player evaluation whatsoever, because I mean, because they tend to be friends that I think it makes it's, it's really unfortunate. For How dare they form powers. friendships? Yeah. Well, I don't mind the, I don't mind them being friends. I mind them making general manager <laughs> yeah. decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's, Please don't think that I don't want the players. No, no, to be no. Friends. I know, I know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the, you know, the like, there are clearly a lot of people around the league over the last several years collectively, you know, who like Oduya. Does somebody, you know, pay assets for him in a trade? I think there you're looking at something much less. You know, uh, a third and maybe a player that they want to get rid of to balance a contract or something. You know, oh yeah, it, on it, I I would take a seventh at this point. I I honestly don't care. I mean, he's a UFA at the end of the year. I'd. I don't think they'd be bringing him back anyway. Um, what about, so let, let's go to the two big fish here. What would you put the chances at both Hoffman and Carlson leaving, like like separately? So Hoffman, what would you say the chances of him getting moved are, like if you had to put a percentage on it? See, Hoffman is, is uh, I feel like he's probably quite likely to leave. It makes me sad. He's one of my so. favorite players, and it would be unfortunate. The, I think quite likely, because I think there will be... I think some team will hit in the next week or so, you know, just before the trade deadline, two weeks-ish almost to the trade deadline. I think some team will hit a totally random scoring slump where none of their guys can seem to score. And Hoffman will score a couple beautiful goals and somebody will, some GM who's been thinking about it, will convince himself to offer a little bit too much for him. Because everybody says, ah, you know, we need some scoring. And now they think Mike Hoffman can be that guy. He can be that guy. The, and, and I don't think... Uh, so I feel like if there are gaps there that they could get bridged. Carlson, on the other hand, I think, uh, I think the senators will step back from the brink. I think they will find a way to to find the money to give it to him that he needs. Um, I I feel like they already remember 
very, very well exactly what it was like to get burned with Alfredson. And and there the stakes were so much less because Alfredson was in the twilight of his career. It was so clearly um, uh, like a, I don't know how to put it, so clearly an off-ice issue, not an on-ice problem. You know, his minutes were not the most vital ones that needed to be replaced. Whereas I think people realized that not giving Carlson what what he wants is is suicide. And even if Carlson says, you know, I want a max deal and I'll just wait until you give it to me. And if you don't, you know, that's if she just says that's my negotiation through his agent. You know, there's I don't think there's even any way that the no matter how hard they try, I don't think they could possibly even paint him as the 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 person who wronged them in such a deal. I think he has just a spectacular amount of leverage in that sense. So so I think that they'll be up against a wall and I think they'll there'll be a lot of people who swear about it, but I think they'll do it. Hmm, that's interesting. I obviously I desperately hope they can re-sign him. I feel I'm honestly getting more pessimistic about him getting re-signed. I like your optimism. That's that's a nice change to be honest. Um, and yeah. <laughs> well, it won't be fast. And they'll 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 make us all stressed for a long time. Oh yeah. Yeah. They'll, for sure. they'll try to wriggle their way out of it and they'll make worse for themselves in the end. But I think they will step away from the ledge at the last second. I hope so. And it's interesting though, I I'm getting more optimistic though about Hoffman. I honestly think that it's gonna take a lot for Dorian to move him and I think that's pretty funny, though, just because the past week or two, Hoffman's been really good, and all of a sudden now you're hearing reports about, you know, it's it's going to take a huge package, whereas before, in, in late December, it was, you know, Bob McKenzie was reporting that it's pretty much, it's going to happen, you know, it's, at some point that Hoffman's going to be moved. So I think they're kind of realizing right now that he has this chemistry with Matt Duchesne, and hopefully they can keep him for next season, and I really don't see any situation where they win a deal involving Hoffman. Having said that, though, you know, if they can get some mega package, if they can, I don't know, somehow get, you know, like Robbie Fabry, Jordan Cairo, and like another piece or something from St. Louis, <laughs> which is ridiculous, right? But like... It, it, <laughs> and a pony. It's, yeah, it's it's not going to happen. But like, that that's why I just think they should keep him. And, and I... And I hope that they will and i think they will keep him honestly i i would love to see it myself um yeah and i so i i mean i have like sort of three tiers of of players if you like in, in very in terms of like how i would approach trades with them i have sort of like guys who really shouldn't be around who who don't provide any benefit whatsoever and then i think anytime Anytime you do a deal where they ship out, you just, it just doesn't count. You know, not part of the calculus. You know, don't even try to strain your model to scrape stuff out of the bottom of the barrel. And other guys at the top where you say, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter even if you offer us like six first rounds. We're not going to trade this guy. It's just too crazy. We're not even going to listen. And then you know, the big, big swath of guys in the middle, I think you ought to have a, a, an opinion which says, you know, we'll look at any offer. Sure, you know. Do something stupid. We'll give you an extremely good player if you'll give us a ridiculous package, like you were just saying. Right. You know, and every now and again, every now and again, they'll come along and you, you know, you don't want someone to, you don't want to stop your enemy from making a mistake just because you said, oh, we're not going to trade him and we think of him as a core piece. Yeah, you the, don't stop listening to calls. But I think you do stop listening to calls on a handful of people. You know, I, you sort of ring fence, I don't know, 10 guys in the league or something, you say. We're just not... 
know, just, just because we're not going to think about things which are silly. But uh, in particular, even if you do take the opinion that, that we're going to be completely, you know, open to everything, I think you still maintain a public facade along those lines about your very best players. And, you know, even if it's a lie, you just say, oh, no, no, we're not taking calls on that. And then if somebody phones you, sure, you listen to them if you're like it. You know, this is one of those places where lying to the public is, is, is sort of part of the ritual dance of owning a sports franchise that, and running a sports franchise that uh, uh, some people don't take very seriously. Yeah, you don't say stupid things like, you know, even Wayne Gretzky can be traded. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, people in financial hardship will do all sorts of stupid things. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, to finish it off here, Micah, if you had to pick a number, how many more trades do you think the Senators will make before the deadline on February, I believe, I want to say the 28th? No, 26th, 26th. Uh, I think just two. I, I reckon Hoffman and I think one of um, the, the other, the sort of trio of three that we were talking about before, of Smith and, uh, um, sorry, two of those three, of Smith, Peugeot, and uh, um, Hoffman. And will we be happy with him? Uh, I expect we won't be happy with him. No, I don't. Nice. <laughs> uh, I was happy. I was happy with, um, you know, I, I have been happy with some of Dorian's deals, of, with, sorry, with trades. Um, but I've been quite unhappy with others. You know, the Burroughs trade is especially bad. Um, this most recent trade, I think, is largely good. The tourist trade, I thought, was was mostly good, although it, mostly even, really. You know, I, I don't consider Dorian to be, you know, below average in terms of making deals, but I also don't consider him to be much above average. And uh, and deadline deals, I think, are, are likely to work out badly. I, I think it would be better if you took an approach where he said something like, we're actually going to keep almost all of these players, you know, unless we get really good offers. I think then, then the chances, if he took that opinion, which I don't trust he will, uh, I think the, the number of expected trades goes down to something more like zero or one. Um, unfortunately, I'm worried that a number of, of trades will come up that will have a lot of financial upside without a great deal of hockey on ice upside. And I think the pressure to take those deals is going to be really, really strong. Yes, that is a fair opinion to have. All right, well, I think that uh, pretty much covers everything for today. But, Micah, is there anything you want to end off with or plug for yourself? The, uh, I think you should all enjoy my website, which is hockeyviz.com. And if you decide to subscribe, that is how I eat and how I <laughs> feed my children. And so uh, there are many, many buttons once you get to hockeyviz.com to find out how to subscribe and you get all sorts of fancy extra stuff. It's very brightly colored. That tends to be how I do things. But, uh, but no, it's a pleasure being on, being on the podcast as always. Thank you very much. You heard the man, hockeyviz.com. Micah, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Have a nice night. Take care. As I wrap it up, reminder that you can find the Cosmo Pointcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, and you can rate and review in those places as well. You can follow me on Twitter at ShaqTS and read my articles at Silver7Sends, which will be loaded with content in the next month. And if you have any suggestions for future episodes, let me know. That's all for me. Adios. <laughs>